in Tokyo, the largest wholesale fish market in the world, a frenetic, deafening, salt-soaked place with almost 500 kinds of seafood and world-famous tuna auctions. Not the obvious place for a contemplative walk, unless you're the artist Jake Tilson. On visits over 12 years, he walked around Skiji day after day for seven or eight hours at a stretch, taking thousands of photos, making recordings, gathering fish-drenched rubbish, lettering, drinks cans, posters, tin labels, packaging, and taking notes. I walked briskly across moonlit tarmac into the gloom of a loading bay, still and empty. To avoid a patrolman, I slip into the darkness of the wholesale hall, pitch black and still. The only sound is the steady thrumming of hundreds of padlocked stainless steel chest freezers, packed with tuna gold, resembling 21st century mausoleums. I wander for an hour, getting lost many times. Exiting the hall near the auction sheds, I breathe a sigh of relief to be outside. That night, I dream of fish and wake easily at 4 a.m hopefully in time to catch the tuna auctions. Jake would take his collection of discarded material back to his Tokyo hotel, wash it, flatten it on top of the loose seat, dry it and pack it into his suitcase to carry back to his South London studio. Over those 12 years, he must have walked thousands of miles, but in just one place. And with all that stuff, he's created an exquisite, uncanny simulacrum of skiji, paintings, signage, assemblage, books, micro-architecture, dioramas, all meticulously made. It's a captivating, reimagined ghost of a place which no longer exists, because in 2018, Skiji was demolished to make a car park for the Olympic Games. Jake's recent Skiji exhibition at White Conduit Projects, the London Art Gallery, was described by the Sunday Times as an extraordinary bounce of the imagination. The Tilson bounce often begins in the basement of his house. It's here that Jake keeps the oddest store of ironmongery that I've ever seen, gathered over decades and from some of the most niche hardware stores in the world. Imagine a DIY paradise crossed with a hunter-gatherer aesthetic, blended with a recycler's artistic vision. All right, we're going down to our cellar. It's very steep steps, these. This is more like a ladder, Jake. It is more like a ladder. I think it, it needs to have be replaced with slightly sort of deep, deep steps. <laughs> but yeah, be careful. You, you really need to be holding on to something other than the microphone. But sometimes, actually, catastrophe in a recording is quite <laughs> amusing. It's quite funny. So I would sacrifice myself for the purposes for the, of the, comedy. For comedy, OK. <laughs> this used to be just full of tools, and the hardware used to be in boxes on shelves, which there's still some of, but most of it's now in this sort of large vertical metal tool cabinet with sliding drawers. How long do you think the oldest item in here has been here? Um, I'd say 
1980. 1980. It's the oldest. I can, I can, I can actually show it to you. <laughs> but there's also things like an entire box full of metal hardware bought back from India. So you've got door handles, door handles, some aluminium brackets, um, uh, chains for goats. Very handy. <laughs> you never know when you're going to need that. Um, I like your filing system. The box just says India. Just says India. Yeah, yeah. But I do know what's in it. So if I ever it's think I need heavy. it, it's quite heavy. I mean, th did that just come back in a suitcase with you? Yeah, that just came back in a suitcase. That is quite heavy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it is. Plus, we had to carry it around all day when we bought it too. <laughs> But you knew you'd need it someday. Yes. So these drawers are. Oh, it's the wheel drawer. Sort of, yeah, they're sort of they are. Yeah, they're organised by type. I mean, they used to be organised by country, hence like boxes of India. But now I've actually put them into uh, this the drawers. It's now by type. So when you say type, I don't see the connection between some of these items. You've got hooks. Some of well, some yes, some of it's um, to do with the scale of the drawer, the depth. So you can only get certain things in. Um, but this is this is mainly handles in this one, which does include this is this was brought back from New York in 1980, which looks like a sort of wooden um, briefcase handle, but is actually formed from pressed tin and then painted to look as if it was a bit of wooden. Absolutely beautiful. I think I've got about seven of those. I've only used about two so far. What did you use the two on? I think I used them on the backs of some large, very heavy um, assemblages. And it's really for the people who install work to be able to have a handle. <laughs> a nice handle. And then these are... Uh, do you know, I, I couldn't even guess what that is. A very, very, very long, hearty, meaty-looking screw with a sort of a, a bloke on the end. Yeah, I think, I think, whoops, I think they have, these are from uh, Belgium, from Brico Job, which was a hardware store in Brussels. <laughs> and they're for, for retaining a shutter on the outside. There's a lock for a shutter. So oh, so the bloke's head and neck, or well, is it a woman? It's a woman one? when it's dropped, when it's down, and then when it's up, it's a man with a beard. Yeah. Yeah, and that screws into the wall, shutter shuts, pull it, pull this thing up, and it holds it tight against the wall so it doesn't blow. So, of all the objects in this extraordinary cellar of yours, so yes. which is which is the oldest, which is the most precious, and which is the most eccentric? Um, Actually, they're all eccentric. What am I saying? They're, they're all, all hilarious. Well, I, I think I do. Th I do think this sort of fake wooden um, briefcase briefcase handle is probably it. And the oldest it, and most precious and most eccentric all in one. Yeah, because I'm also I'm finding it quite hard to to let go of <laughs> and to use. It's gonna. I keep on taking it up to the studio and thinking, oh, I'm going to use it on this. I think, no, no, I'll just take it back down. Maybe I, I probably won't be buried in, in anything. So, but otherwise, if I was, I think I probably want to have this on my coffin. On your lid. <laughs> yes, on the. In lid. case anyone wants to open you up. <laughs> yes. Jake seems to have a thing about lids, not just coffin ones. Walking around his skeegee show, I could see that the micro-architecture fish stalls that he's recreated have removable tops to them. The stalls, attached to the gallery wall in a long row, are shoebox-sized flights of the imagination, perfectly constructed. It's got potentially I could have glued the lids to them and you would just be able to see the interiors through the windows at the side. But in the end, I thought, no, I think really I would like people to open them and look. 
and so part of the experience of them is, is being able to open them. And they also make, it becomes a very different object. It becomes a box because it's a lid, which is, is, is different. And it's got, it's got the rattle of a lid, which I think is interesting. Trying to develop a voice for them was the hardest thing. Um, so there were lots and lots of failed attempts, which I made out of slightly different materials, different paint finishes, threw them all away. And eventually this is how they ended up being made. And once that was decided, they were fairly sort of straightforward. And and when, it, when the voice was wrong, how yeah. did you know it was wrong? I have in, intuition. It's just, just intuition. You just know. You just know it's not, not right. I don't think there's any other way of um, being able to describe that feeling, really. It's just a sort of visceral sort of tingle in the chest. That's, yes. That's it. Yes. That's yes. how it should be. Yeah. Yeah. And the delight that people have expressed when they come in and look inside, I thought was really vividly brought to life by the, the story you told me about the, um, the, the man who's, who's bought one of these but wanted to bring his... He brought his children in to see them and um, his daughter in particular asked if, if she could put toys in it and I thought, absolutely, that's a great idea. And she had a, um, a little stuffed mouse which she tested putting it inside. It fitted perfectly, right, perfect size. So it was a great, good idea. So how much of all these pieces of microarchitecture is representative of the fish market and how much actually contains elements of that fish market? Um, the the microarchitecture models, but the, the cashier booths are very accurate of specific booths to the point where if the owner of this particular booth came in, he'd, be, he'd probably fall over because it looks just like his booth or her booth. Most of the people who work in them, a lot of them are women, actually. Um, and this series of works above them, these two rows, are details of the upper sections of the wholesale stalls, which have typography and spaces to store polystyrene and things. And those are also quite accurate representations of specific stalls. But on the other side of the gallery, there's a series of larger um, sort of assemblage collages. I call these fish stalls, and each one represents a single species, such as John Doré, halibut, squid, and this sort of typography at the top, which says John Doré in Japanese. Um, but these are sort of more evocative of how the market feels to me. And there are, there are some elements of actual bits of the market in them. Um, quite a lot of them have these flattened cans from the vending machine at the market, which then were squashed on, on, the, on the sort of road by constant being just driven over. So there's quite a lot of them. Japanese people spot these visiting the show instantly because they're just so, so evocative to them. They're all, almost entirely all coffee, hot coffee, yeah. Jake destroys so much of what he makes and only when he thinks it's perfect does it go into a show. He doesn't care how long things take. Projects can be several decades in the making. I never see it as punishing. Oh, it was, who was it? John Cleese talking about creativity, which he talks about quite well. And he was talking about certain people who are very creative aren't afraid of a period in creating work where things are going wrong. Most people want to get something right, so they'll, they'll say, oh, that, that hasn't, this has almost worked, we'll just do that. 
Whereas I'm really quite happy to do something wrong for years and years and years because it's worth it. But it's, it's, not, it's not something that I find, um, dis, it's not discomforting or annoying. It's just, it's part of the process. And in that process, you know, what part does walking sort of play in the creation of all this work? I mean, literally, the walking around the market for all these hours a day and the making of maps was absolutely fundamental to what you've created. But is there something about walking that, that does more than that to your creative brain? Uh, to, to me, it's, it's, the, it's the beginning of every process. Every, every project, I'd say, is from walking in a city. Um, and since, you know why? How? Since I was, um, possibly when I first went to New York in 1980 um, and walked there constantly for sort of 10 days up and down the entire um, sort of island of Manhattan. Um, and that, that was the first time I, I realised the sort of power of, of it and how useful it was. Um, but I haven't stopped. But I don't know why I do it. Do you know, as you're doing it, that, that thoughts are coming? Um, it's, no, it's, it's, no, it's always completely tangential. You have, you're always doing something else. So with this project, um, I just finished a book, a cookbook about fish, called In at the Deep End. And I'd also done a project called Annette of Eels, looking at, looking at eel culture in Japan and the UK. And so I found myself at Skiji because of that. Um, and the market found its way quite prominently into the, um, the fish book. And afterwards I actually started a, a studio project that was going to be some sort of studio work based on five cities. So I think Sydney, uh, Gothenburg, New York, Japan and Venice and, and Aberdeen perhaps. And I started work on this and again produced quite a lot of work, again, threw it all away when I realised that it really was Skiji that was very, very special and different and just drew me in. And I, perhaps it just, I think it perhaps represents how I see the world. It's my sort of world view, that sort of collaged, chaotic, layered. Lots of typography. Layered. It's the layering, isn't it? That's yes. so important. That sort yeah. of sedimental sense of what lies beneath. Yes. On every walk, Jake is drawn to typography. Where everyone else might admire wildflowers or cloud formations, Jake is smitten by lettering. But walking through Chapel Street Market, past the gallery, it seemed to me it was the shape of the letters that he was fascinated by, not what the words actually said. The signage on the now-defunct Manzi's Pie, Mash and Eel shop could have said anything. So even when driving um, in cars, um, I'm always the passenger, of course, because I don't drive, but I find myself looking at the typography on trucks rather than the landscape, which is terrible, isn't it? And even in the countryside, I'll, I'll hunt out signage in fields <laughs> rather than look at trees. So I think, it's, I think typography for me is perhaps the way into in an, an urban environment. I get um, the impression with the typography, with the fonts that you're creating and seeing, you're not actually reading what the words say so much as looking at the shape of the words. Yes, I think you're right. I think it is the, it's the actual typefaces. I think, it's, I think it's, the, it's the typefaces rather than the, what they're saying that is, yes, that's important um, to me. Do you ever that worry about the amount of time all the projects are taking? I mean, you're, you're devoting 
years of labour, years of walking to each individual project. You're recording it with thousands and thousands of film images. Uh, Are you ever nervous that actually you're going to start running out of time if you're not careful, given how long each project takes? I'm, I, often, I often run projects sort of concurrently. So I do have a, a, very, a very long long scale project about typography, signage in Venice, um, which I've been working on for nearly 20 years now. And that was going to finish this year, and I thought it would be a sort of disaster to have two such long-term projects finish on the same year. It would be sort of not, not a clever thing to do. So I pushed that one back for next year. Uh, no, I, I don't understand how people can't work on projects or wouldn't want to work on projects for so long. They, they just do take that, that amount of time. And you never want to take a shortcut, I don't think. Not even no. with the walking process, because I suppose logically you could say to yourself, well, if I cut out the hundreds of miles of walking per project, then I'll save myself a few years. But you can't do that either, can you? No, because the, the walking is very much part of making sure the hunch that you've got about how you feel about a city or a neighbourhood is right, so you go back and find places that are more like how you thought they were. Um, on the last trip to Tokyo, I asked some advice from a Japanese property Instagram account who seemed to be finding all these brilliant neighbourhoods in Japan, in Tokyo, and they very kindly gave me a list and I went to them all. First I, I went on Google Earth and walked around them on Google Earth before I went to see how interesting they were and realised they were really very good indeed. Sadly, I went to one and my, possibly what was going to be one of my favourite bits of signage on this building had been torn down in the, in, the, in the sort of three months it took to get there, which is very sad and very typical of, of Tokyo. I love the sense that there's a, almost like a physical mark on you from these great expeditions. I think you described the battering that your shoes took in your trudge around day after day after day around the fish market. You could almost see the sediment building on your shoes, I think. It's, pro it's probably a bit like how hill walkers feel <laughs> when their boots are encrusted with, with mud. Mine, mine were encrusted with salt from the, uh, from the market where there's a lot of salt water used. So they actually had, I had salt damage to my shoes. <laughs> Walking and typefaces are obsessions, so much so that when Jay creates art books for his projects, he designs original typefaces specially for them. There's Tamburini, inspired by 33 characters on a cash register receipt from Bologna. Sydney Lace was drawn from decorative cast ironwork seen in Australia. The typeface Scottish Trawler emerge from the registration numbers that he saw hand-painted on a Scottish fishing boat. And where would you start if you wanted a typeface for a book about eels? By buying an eel from a fishmonger's in Nunhead. I only ordered the, the one, which I think sort of um, bemused them slightly, and I said, I, I want it to be alive. And they said, OK, we can't actually sell it to you alive. Um, but they said, you could, and I explained, can I just take it across to the park opposite for half an hour and bring it back alive? And they said, okay. So they gave me a tray and I walked across the road into this park and then took photographs of the eel in various positions until I realised I had enough shapes to make up an entire alphabet and then took the eel back to the shop where um, sadly it had to be dispatched and then sold on to someone else. I didn't, didn't, want, to, didn't want to eat it. And then, yes, and then I made the typeface from that. 
Who made other typefaces? Did, I think you made one. Is it called Pomodoro? Pomodoro, from, yes. From a tin of tomatoes. In yes. Venice, I think. Uh, in Cortona, in Tuscany. Yes, just a. Um, yes, just one this one tin of tomatoes, which had this very beautiful typeface, which I then created an entire, entire typeface just from these six or seven characters. So typography is something that is important, as it is in this show as well. The microarchitecture stalls don't have what would have been the proprietor's name on the stalls because I didn't feel it was a, a language I understood well enough to be able to use um, and understand the nuances of someone's name and what it meant. So these are actually all fish names. But then beyond that, typographically, I wanted to stretch the types of typeface and the eras from which these bits of typography come. So um, if you're Japanese, you'd, you'd come and think, oh, that's a very 70s typeface, or that's rather 90s. So I think that was, that was something that was important. There was something else in the Skiji show which entranced anyone who knew Tokyo in the 70s and 80s, a life-size diorama of a fish stall with a genuine pale pink public telephone. Think Pepto-Bismol with a touch of germaline antiseptic ointment. It was found by Jake's wife, the celebrated potter Jennifer Lee, when she too was working in Japan. Yeah, she found a sort of um, dilapidated house in the countryside and in the field in front of it, it was full of bits of door frames and latches and lots of little bits of rusty metal which she brought back. And also in the very front window, as part of the, the cashier's booth, there's a, an old Japanese pink payphone. <laughs> which she found in, uh, I think, Shigaraki or Mashiko on a residency in a second-hand shop and shipped it back and then gave it to me for, as a Christmas present. Were you thrilled? <laughs> Absolutely thrilled. She knew, <laughs> she knew I was looking for one and she found it. And this, is, this is another object that really draws in um, Japanese friends. It's from the sort of 1970s, so they have a sort of nostalgia for this, this era of, of telephone. Extremely heavy. And you would see, you'd see those all over the market. Halfway through Jake's Skiji project, the Japanese government announced that they'd be closing down the market to make way for the car park. I'd assumed that the decision would turn Jake's ongoing work into a kind of memorial, but not at all. All it meant was that Jake decided to re-photograph all the light fittings featured in one of the books that he was making for his show. Lights on were changed to lights off. But was he just a little mournful that he was documenting something that was disappearing before his eyes? No, no, not in the slightest. The sort of core to the project is this series of books which sits here on this counter, which is a, a ten-volume set of photographs of the market made over, over those sort of 12 years. And it was only halfway through the project that I knew the market was actually going to be shutting. So the impetus to the project wasn't to record it at all. It was um, to celebrate it. It was to celebrate it, yes. So I, I managed to keep on to that, that feeling right the way through. I kept the, the spirit of celebration. I think the, the, the ten-volume set of books perhaps became denser and a bit, I, I probably paid a bit more attention to certain details. I mean, there are things, there's an entire book on light fittings. And I realised all the photographs I had originally were of the light fitting with them on 
and so you couldn't really see the form of the bulb or it, it, the, you know, the photographs blew out so you couldn't see them. So I had to go back and re-photograph them all when the lights were off <laughs> during the day. So th I think there were only, only sort of instances like that. When he's planning a long-term project, he marks his walks with handmade maps. They're vast works of art, half a metre wide and a metre long. But he doesn't mind how long it takes to make those either. This is actually a 2007 walking map from Croydon Council. It's a huge, big map. It must be A1, which is sort of colour-coded and has all the routes I marked on. I was commissioned by Croydon Council to produce a cookbook looking at different um, ethnic sort of neighbourhoods in Croydon and went to sort of Polish and Ghanaian uh, shops and restaurants and actually into people's houses too. We actually went and cooked with, with people. There was a writer involved and then we produced this wonderful book. This is this huge, as you can hear, the map um, of the borough. And this is one of the Skiji maps, which is pieced together from Google Map View and then sellotaped together and using a pen, it traces all of the various routes that I walked over about sort of four or five years. But particularly, this was made for trying to find a viewpoint from which I could photograph the market from above. So trying to find a public space that was quite high Lots of the buildings around were owned by corporations, but I found this was a public car park. So I could actually walk up the ramp, and it, it says on the map with little arrows, photo, which I did with great success, which was very handy. Time is as much a material in his process as ink or collage or typography. The time taken to walk thousands of miles, the insistence on making and remaking until the work is right, the years of growing the Iron Mungary Mountain, the lugging of suitcases around the world, and taking it seriously whilst enjoying the eccentricity of it all, down to wearing the right clothing when immersed in a project. Skiji market, jacket and luggage decorated with fish, of course, although it's hardly surprising that a film crew, which happened to be at Tokyo Airport when he landed on one of his visits, did ask him what he was doing. I was spotted coming off an aeroplane wearing um, a coat which had fish stencils all over it and my luggage had stencils as well with fish and yes they, they interviewed me and asked me what I was doing and I told them about the project and they wanted to follow me for seven days um, and I said that's absolutely fine but the market had literally just shut two weeks before and I said if you can get us into the market I'll, I'll let you do it. And we exchanged emails, but, but sadly they, they couldn't get us in, so I didn't do it. I think it was probably just as well. I think it's one of those Japanese um, TV shows that folks find it foreign. <laughs> <laughs>